everyone. I'm Kyle Dyer, and welcome to Colorado Inside Out on this Friday, July 21st. This is a big week for the city of Denver, and I would say for Colorado as well, since Denver is the capital of our state, and it's where much of the state's business takes place. Denver now has its 46th mayor with Mike Johnston. We have lots to talk about this week, so let me introduce you to our panel. We have Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward. Eric Sonderman, columnist with Colorado Politics and the Denver and Colorado Springs Gazettes. Also, Alton Dillard, a communications and media relations consultant after his years with the city of Denver as an election spokesperson, and Laura Carno, executive director of Faster Colorado. Let's start with the state and the future of Denver and the expectations and the reaction thus far with having someone new in the mayor's office for the first time in 12 years. Patty. Well, it was it's exciting to have someone new in the office after 12 years. And you look back very slowly if you happen to watch Michael Hancock's movie, Denver Rising, but you look back over the last 12 years and it's been really, really a tough time for Denver. You remember coming out of the recession, but Hickenlooper had kind of pushed things along. We had all the millennials coming here and loving it. And now we kind of leave the, with this weird narrative of Denver in decay. So the first day of Michael Johnston in office was great because you had a very good swearing in ceremony, blessedly inside at the Ellie Calkins. And you look at what the Denver Performing Arts Complex looks like these days, and it's very active, and it's full of free events, and as well as paid events, that's great. They went on to have a party down by Union Station. You look at how Union Station has grown. That wasn't open 12 years ago, or I should say the renovation wasn't completed. So it was a great bunch of local bands and local entertainers. So there's a lot of good atmosphere downtown. I would say Denver is not in decay, We'll get into one of the issues that Michael Johnston brought up his second day in office, his first full day in office, but it's a good time for Denver just to take stock in what it's doing and push forward. Eric. I thought it was a neat celebration, and Denver needed a, a, a fresh start. Uh, Twelve years is a long time. I've been on record for a long time saying third terms should not be, you know, we should outlaw those. And Mike Johnston would do us a service if he would lead a change to the charter just to get rid of third terms. The eight years uh, is plenty. The last four have been particularly tough for Denver, obviously, uh, and it doesn't all fall on Michael Hancock's desk, but we had a pandemic and then everything that, that flowed out of the pandemic. Uh, the movie that Patty referenced, which is a little bit of self-aggrandizement on the Hancock administration's part, you know, maybe they could have kept it to 30 minutes or whatever. We had a 94-minute movie called Denver Rising. I actually think Denver Rising is the story of maybe the first eight years of the Hancock administration. Denver falling or sinking would probably be the sequel to covering uh, the more recent years and final years uh, of that administration. Again, that is not all on Hancock. I'm glad that there was a big celebration. I'm glad there was a big party um, because there's hard work ahead of Michael Hancock and there's also a new city council, a substantially changed city council in place and they all have a lot on their plates. Denver's invested in them. You said Michael Hancock. We're used to having Michael in office, right? Michael Johnston. My yes. bad. <laughs> no, it's okay. My bad. Um, Alton, you worked for city government so for so long, mm -hmm. and now you're from the outside and you're seeing this change. What's going through your mind this week? Well, what's going through my mind is with Team Johnston coming in, this is where pie meets sky. So the thing I'm looking for to, is there's this grand vision 
And as someone who's worked in municipal government, I'm very aware of the grind of municipal government. And so hearing the grand vision and knowing that at the staff level, you've got a lot of hardworking city employees, but some of those city employees are very entrenched. And I'm gonna be totally transparent. I was there for 17 years, but I was able to sort of roll with the punches. So one of the things that I would advise the incoming Johnston team to do would be to avail themselves of the City's Peak Academy. The City's Peak Academy uses uh, Six Sigma process improvement techniques and and they are able to drop literally a rapid improvement team into different agencies. And that's how I think they're going to be able to bridge a lot of these new visions with someone who's used to doing the same thing the same way for 30 years. Mm, okay. Laura. Yeah, you know, I think something that'll be interesting to watch, um, it was well reported that Johnston hired as his chief of staff somebody who comes from a political background as opposed to an administration of government um, or the city background. And Denver's a huge city. It's very complex. There are lots of problems. Um, it's led to speculation that this is day one of Johnston's campaign for governor, um, that he's keeping the, the political focus around him as opposed to the, you know, more of that governing focus. So that, that's going to be really interesting to watch to see um, how that affects decisions that are made um, in, in the coming months. Let's dive a little bit deeper, though, into how this coming Monday, the 24th, the city's Emergency Operations Center will activate to assist the city's homeless. Eric. Well, I think Alton, who will come after me, has more details of exactly what this emergency declaration means in terms of very tangible how the city operate, emergency operations center responds. Uh, I think this was an interesting play by Mike Johnston. Let me get the last name mm -hmm. correct this time. Uh, by Mike Johnston on his first full day in office to dramatize the issue. Obviously, it was a centerpiece of his campaign. It will be a significant measuring stick of the success of the Johnston administration. He has set a very high and ambitious bar out there, and people are going to hold him somewhat accountable to that bar. The proof will ultimately be in the pudding of whether he can deliver and end homelessness or even just very, very tangibly reduce homelessness. I do think there is probably more symbolic value than anything else in this emergency declaration. If you look to the city of Portland, Oregon, they've been under an emergency declaration since 2015, which has been renewed, I believe, five or six times. And yet, homelessness is nowhere near under control in Portland and has continued to expand. So the declaration itself doesn't do anything. It's everything that will now follow. When you have an emergency declaration like this, essentially it, you're in a mode called save the city. So it doesn't make any difference if you're at city attorney, clerk and recorder, um, parks and rec. No, that all goes out the window. You were detailed to a save the city response. So the emergency declaration does a couple of things. It helps free up funding, but then it also pulls those resources together. So here's a couple of for instances. The, of course, it was activated for some long-term things like the COVID response, but there were also times like the still unsolved Emerson Street fire the bomb cyclone of a few years ago, you know? So something as simple as like, okay, we've got a power outage in this senior high rise. Let's grab some buses. Well, who do you get them from? 
So there's representation from RTD in the room. There's representation from the city budget office in case they have to write a quick check to be able to make some of these things happen as far as pulling in resources. As we mentioned, we have a new city council. There's a city council liaison in there. There's utility branch liaisons. And so if you ever get a chance just to even Google it, you will see a bunker full of people in color-coded vests. And each of them, including the folks in the communications wing, have a specific duty and it's one of the things I always found so interesting is like you truly are in save the city mode that's why I'm quoted in a few places on the issue of homelessness which is not in my swim lane but I was the spokesperson on duty during the pandemic when they opened up the National Western Center and the Coliseum which is another example of how you rapidly respond to an issue hmm. Interesting. Thanks, Laura. Yeah, I, I look at the potential solutions to homelessness, and obviously nobody's completely figured this out because we have homelessness. Um, but there's a lot of controversy about this housing first, and if this is really the thing that's going to help. We all want our neighbors to be warm, safe, and dry. That, that, that's, a, that's a given. Um, but is this the way to do it um, by just providing housing without dealing with the underlying causes. There's mental illness, there's addiction, uh, there's all kinds of things like that, that in, in the mayor's proclamation, I wasn't seeing any, anything that was addressing those underlying causes. And so if you provide uh, a safe housing to keep them warm, safe and dry, um, that is a thing. Um, but if you don't address the underlying things, then what? The other thing I thought was interesting in his speech was uh, he said, uh, when you land, uh, we're going to give you a home. And it, 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 it sounded like almost the, the marijuana thing. We were the you know, first in the nation on, on recreational marijuana. Uh, come on in. We've got, we've got marijuana. Come on in. We've got housing for homeless. So I thought there were some interesting things in there that um, we're going to see how they play out. Um, but I'm not sure if it's addressing the underlying issue for sure. Patty. Well, two of the things he mentioned right away that were interesting is going out into the community, so going into all 78 neighborhoods, which the new mayor and his representatives should do anyway, but all the council people were standing up there with him, so they're going to do it through the council people, so everyone is going to be involved, at least given the opportunity to speak. That's important because one of the hallmarks of his plan is to create these safe camping sites or tiny villages. He talked about at least 20, and they've identified 197 different possible places they could go. So he's going to get a lot of NIMBY blowback, and to get out there and be aggressive at the start is important. The other thing he's done is he's moved in Cole Chandler, who has just most recently been at the state, but he is the one who launched the tiny villages movement here, the safe camping sites. He got them set up, and there were indeed access to services like mental health issues, other health issues, and those were hallmarks of those areas. So I think he's going to be pushing that. Will it work? Will we hear a lot of whining over the next 100 days? I think so, but he's launched something important. Do we know when those meetings in the different neighborhoods are happening? I think they'll start as soon as next week. As soon as the emergency starts? Okay. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. Uh, the seventh item in Mayor Johnson's action plan on homelessness is to expand collaboration locally, regionally, etc. But the local collaboration is in question in one other area. On Monday, Alton, Aurora City Council said it won't deploy officers to Denver during protests until Denver agrees to protect them with from the liability. 
And that's kind of a big uh, to Denver, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is for a couple of reasons. And I'm not an attorney, but I do know, again, because of my tenure in city government, how fraught terms like liability and indemnification are. I have seen large contracts come to a screeching halt over that kind of language. So the thing that's interesting to me is that, remember, Denver is a home rule city and county with a strong mayor form of government. In Aurora, Mayor Kaufman is part of the body of the Aurora City Council. And I've always found his, I wouldn't necessarily call it rise to be fairly fascinating because people are like, well, how would someone who's a conservative like Kaufman get elected in a diverse city like Aurora? When Kaufman was in Congress, he spent a lot of time in the immigrant communities, the refugee communities, communities of color. So that's going to give him a little bit of cred on this. Now, and of course, I know Aurora feels that they got sort of left holding the bag. It's like we sent our officers in trying to help you out. And it sounds like there's still some question of if it was just Denver officers who fired beanbags in the crowd or if some of the Aurora ones did. So we'll have to see how that shakes out legally. But that is going to you know, when you're talking about regional response and even back to homelessness quickly, seeing how like Douglas County and some of these folks are saying, uh, we're getting a handle on this now. Point in time survey shows 60. We're going to get that dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's not like it's the, these cops are coming from like Shangri-La where no crime is happening. Um, Aurora has its own, its own issue. So to have a mutual aid uh, uh, contract or whatever with Denver, um, there, there's always all kinds of things in these mutual aid contracts on, on who's giving what and who's taking what. But, but it's not like nothing's happening in Aurora. So for Aurora to give up its officers to something big happening in Denver, kind of a big thing um, because they've got their own problems to deal with. So um, you know, I, don't, I don't blame the city of Aurora and, and Mayor Kaufman for saying, hang on a second, we, we have folks that we need to look out for. We have our own... Um, budget and liability insurance and all of that stuff that they need to look out for. I don't. I don't blame them for saying, "Hang on a second. Let's let's take a look at what this mutual aid agreement looks like, so that it works for both halves." Mm -hmm. Maybe the new administration can start can have new talks. Well, maybe. they definitely need to talk. And what I'm interested in, and maybe Alton knows. So, 15 years ago, when the DNC was here. You had all this metro cooperation and all this communication of if some disaster happened, they would certainly open more than the emergency room. But these, these police departments had to know how to communicate with each other. They had to know what the rules were. Denver had different rules than Aurora in 2020. And why didn't Denver tell you what you could do in the way of non-lethal weapons, the response that was appropriate? And when you talk about Aurora's problems, I mean, they had the Elijah McClain protests at the exact same time the um, George Floyd protests were coming down. So Aurora did have problems, but why the police officers, commanders, didn't get on the same page to talk about what they could or couldn't do is still a big mystery, and I put that on Denver. Mm -hmm. Eric? I think Laura's point in particular is very well taken. It's not like uh, Aurora is sitting out there with all this excess capacity and no need for law enforcement. Uh, very much to the contrary, the whole thing strikes me as a little bit of a no-brainer. And I come down on Aurora's and Mike Kaufman's side on this. If Denver is asking and needing this kind of assistance, 
and another city, whether it's Aurora or any other suburban city, is offering that kind of assistance in the way of police officers, well, Denver can, you know, step up to the plate. It's Denver's problem. Denver should step up to the plate and provide the liability protection or whatever else uh, is required here. I think this whole issue of metropolitan cooperation, which is the bigger issue, is going to be something that uh, maybe has languished a bit over recent years. It was a central calling card to John Hickenlooper way back when, when John Hickenlooper was mayor, before we had a governor or Senator Hickenlooper. It was his central calling card. It really hasn't been the calling card of uh, the mayor over recent years. Now, that's not to say there haven't been plenty examples of Hancock and suburban cooperation, but uh, Johnston has his hands full in Denver, but I think as he comes firmly in charge of the Denver reins, he's also going to need to venture out and, and build those relationships. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about an issue that is affecting people in all of Colorado's 64 counties, our property tax assessments. Laura, the number of protests filed with county assessors has shot up 300 percent. Yeah, I, I was at a meeting last night with um, my county assessor, and she looked exhausted. And um, she talked about the numbers just in, in my small rural county, and the big counties are, are just really out of control. That What that tells you, though, is this issue is hitting absolutely everybody, um, including people who rent, um, because uh, increased property taxes are passed along to renters. So this is really hitting everybody. The thing to watch is this Prop HH that's going to be on the ballot in November um, is being sold as rainbows and unicorns, and we're going to reduce your property taxes. Um, the And that's the first part of it, the rainbows and unicorns. What follows after is, and you're giving up your taxpayer refunds um, under the, the um, Taxpayer's Bill of Rights. So people need to know that. There's finally been some polling. David Flaherty at Magellan Strategies did some polling. Um, what do people think just on the ballot language versus when they're a little bit more informed about it and all of a sudden it is upside down for the HH proponent. So it's gonna be very interesting. I think there's gonna be a lot of money on both sides and I say uh, voter beware here. Mm -hmm. Patty? Well, everyone's using food analogies, pudding and pie, but I'm going to say this is sports. It was a Hail Mary to get HH on the ballot because the legislature hadn't worked out this crunch that they knew was coming with property taxes and with these high assessments that were coming. People still don't know what their taxes ultimately will be. They just know they saw this huge valuation coming through. So you have to feel bad for already beleaguered county assessor's offices, which have what until the 15th, I think, of August to go through all this. And then you're going to have upset people because the majority of them will not be accepted, the protests. So you're going to have people going into this November vote really upset with all their elected officials and trying to figure out exactly what that ballot measure means. I think the whole issue of property taxes is the sleeper issue in Colorado these days. Yes, there's homelessness, there's crime, there's ongoing debates about marijuana, there's certainly cost of living issues. Property taxes are part of that cost of living issue. I think in terms of if there is any issue that keeps Democrats, starting with the governor and on down, maybe up at night worrying about their majorities or worrying about their hold on power, 
Now, the, the, their security blanket is that the Republican Party in the state is completely inept. But the one issue out there that I think is a threatening issue is the potential for a property tax revolt. This poll that Laura referenced is a very interesting poll, and I think it is a problematic poll for the proponents of HH. If the public reaction is that the more they know, the less inclined they are to support it. That is a tough place to be here three and a half months or whatever it is uh, be before the election. When I see HH, and I really have to agree with uh, Laura's point here, it's one of those things that affects everybody. It sort of reminded me of the debt ceiling discussions. When you're messing with the billionaire's money and you're messing with John and John Sixpack's money, that's an issue. And the thing that is at least slightly heartening based on the Magellan poll is that at least people as they read are becoming more informed. If people read, we wouldn't have Tabor in the first place. So it's nice to know that people are taking a slightly deeper dive on this. And you're right, everyone you know, ran to their assessors, everyone was you know, reaching out to their realtors or on Redfin or whatever, doing their own comps, because those are big, scary numbers. And the other thing that I found interesting was Andrew Kenny's uh, reporting, where he's kind of saying there's a belief that some of this is sort of a, a straw man to shore up the uh, state's education fund funding infrastructure. So there's going to be a lot that really comes out of this issue over the next couple of months. And then, you know, ballots hit 22 days before every election, then it's on and cracking from there. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you all. I think it's our duty at this table to talk a lot about HH and get people informed before election day. Could kill our, our viewership though. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll talk about this. Uh, now it's time to point out some of the highs and lows of the week here in Colorado or elsewhere. Patty, I'll start with you with a low of the week. I have to go with Lauren Boebert. I've left her alone for a little bit, but when she took to the House floor to talk about the horrible, horrible books in military libraries. And she proceeded to criticize several books that are really nice kids' books. We just didn't need her reviews. Hmm. Okay, I didn't hear about that one. I missed the Lauren Boebert book list. I'll be. I'll send it to you. I'll be, I'll be sure to go <laughs> grab that for my, my recommended reading. Uh, on the other side of the aisle, there's this flip out going on that I think is way premature among various democratic interest groups around the country about this whole no labels effort that could, and we'll see if no labels results in anything, but it's the idea of a viable third political party that would be more unifying and healing and maybe start to move us past this toxic polarization that we are into. There is time for this to play out, but there is an organized effort on the part of the Biden administration and others to delegitimize this effort before it ever launches off the ground. Okay. Thank you. Alton. I'm going to take mine out of the world of politics, and I'm going to quote my good friend, uh, former state senator Peter Groff, when he says that nothing works and nobody works. Customer service is in the tank. I am sorry, the pandemic height of it was a while ago. I went to a lodge in Winter Park. They offered a, t a 10 buck breakfast, couldn't find anyone to pay. Went down to the front counter to settle up. That's not our responsibility. You gotta find someone with an iPad. Go down the next morning, restaurant closed. Went back to the front desk, they're like, it's on the house. So I was like, well, at least that's some customer service. But we're far enough past the height of the pandemic where, and I understand restaurants and service industry, that's tough work, but please people, let's, let's bring it back a little. I had an experience in a restaurant too, not here, where I was like, do you want us to pay or should we just leave? Like, <laughs> exactly. please come back to us. <laughs> 
Okay, Laura. Yeah, the Food Bank of the Rockies reported that they are seeing an increase of 40% of people who need food. And while it is good for all of us to help our neighbors in need, government at every level needs to look at what they are doing to make things more expensive, whether it's rooftop gardens or construction defect laws or all of that stuff that adds, adds little bits here and there that makes everything more expensive for people. Mm -hmm. All right, let's end on something positive. Well, I'm sad that only Alton and I paid attention to the Barbie memo. It's not just that the Barbie movie is out. It's that Barbie was created by a Denverite, Ruth Handler, back in 1959, and she should be celebrated. I did not know that. Did you guys know that? She co-founded Mattel with her husband. Get out. Both from Denver. Are there they family still here, I wonder? They do have some family okay. still here. Okay, all right. Yes, I like the pink on you both. I had no idea, and I didn't get the memo about the pink. Uh, I'm going to do a very quick twofer. Uh, we lost a neighbor uh, up in Tabernash, where we live. Our next-door neighbor, a woman named Linda Finnegan, died suddenly a week ago. Her husband, Bill, is a regular viewer of this program. Our thoughts are with you. And on a much more positive note, we have a young woman, Sky Leach, who is observing uh, this show today, uh, the taping of this show. She is a rising high school freshman, and to wish there were more young people like her with an interest in media and public affairs. I do as well. Welcome. Yes. And mine is, I am turning the big 6-0 at the time of this taping. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Happy you. birthday. Thank you. And so as I like to say, the mind says 40, the back says 80, and I'm splitting the difference. <laughs> <laughs> You're still younger than Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> Laura. And speaking of helping our neighbors, there is a critical shortage of blood. And this is something that almost everybody can get involved with to give blood. My husband and I are going in next week for our, um, our next bout. And this helps um, accident victims, surgery, um, people undergoing surgery, babies, helps everybody. It, none of it goes to waste. So um, call up Vitalin or your local blood bank and give blood. Thank you. My baby, when she was younger, needed blood transfusion, so thank you. Yes, ma'am. And to everyone out there. My positive is just the appreciation for history and the joyous reaction to when Colorado went major league. Since its release last week, the documentary uh, captures the can-do spirit of Coloradans 30 years ago, which led to us getting our own major league team, uh, the Rockies. So when Colorado went major league, we'll be showing here on PBS 12, so thanks for that PBS 12 on Monday night at 8 o'clock. I hope you all catch that hour-long program. Program, not 94 minutes, <laughs> just 58 minutes actually, 58.30. And thanks for watching this 30-minute program this week. We appreciate it. Or if you are listening on your podcast, thanks as well. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week here on PBS 12.